everyone, my name is Sarah Sun and I'm your host for today's episode of Think with ABD. Here at Analytics by Design, we are passionate about driving the conversations that are shaping our future through the use of AI, technology, and design. I have nothing but the utmost respect and admiration for our next guest. She is nothing short of inspiring. Fergaya has a drive to find the answers to complex questions. She's the CEO of a data science firm called Theory and Practice, which specializes in bringing advanced AI solutions to the retail and financial services industries. Using insights from behavioral economics and tools from advanced analytics, she's been helping retailers not only get more value from their existing data, but also works to help them navigate the rapidly changing landscape of AI solutions. Ragaya has a PhD in economics and a master's in experimental particle physics. Not only that, but I'm proud to announce that she is the recipient of the 2020 Women of Influence Ones to Watch Award. Welcome to the show, Ragaya. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's great to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. I know that you and I met a few years ago when theory and practice was really just getting off the ground. And I remember being just so impressed then about what you're doing, but mostly your approach to how you tackle AI solutions. Why don't you tell me a little bit about TAP? TAP is a data science uh, services company. And as you mentioned, we are working at the uh, cutting edge of AI and predictive analytics solutions. Uh, we work with our clients uh, collaboratively to first identify what are some of the important questions that uh, we know are going to create tangible uh, ROI and value for the company. And only then we set to actually go solve for those problems. Uh, a lot of our work happens in the big data space in retail finance and insurance. So given your background and what you do currently, like how do you, how do you go from like game theory and particle physics to theory and practice? How did that happen? Well, actually the name says it all, it's theory and practice. <laughs> it's the solutions from uh, sciences such as physics, computer science, engineering, combined with uh, the practical ways that social sciences uh, help us to actually ask questions or you know, zero in to some of the assumptions or questioning some of the assumptions that uh, we ask. So it's really not just about the solutions or you know, knowing how to build algorithms, but actually being able to ask the question. So I think in terms of my own background, you're right, it's a, it's a little bit of a funny background going from particle physics to economics, especially getting into game theory and behavioral economics as opposed to finance, which is usually what most physicists do if they switch to economics. Uh, so for me, um, it was really fascinating uh, right off the bat to be able to study why people do what they do the way they do it, which is really what game theory does. But being able to go to a lot of data to not just identify um, the um, factors that influence our behavior, but actually to quantify them. And that is, uh, I guess, the kind of methodology that we bring um, bring to practice at, at the company right now. Uh, you know, oftentimes I sit with um, business professionals, with, I sit with a lot of different executives and, uh, you know, they ask me, do you guys do AI? Do you do machine learning? Do you do big data? And the answer is yes to all of them, but I'm not quite sure if you actually need them. And they're like, what do you mean? Well, uh, is AI and some of the solutions that are developed in advanced analytics um, can help you know, accelerate some of the processes? Absolutely it can. Can it help you know, increase revenue and save costs, increase efficiencies, all those sort of things? Yes, it can. But there are some prerequisites in order to really be able to maximize on uh, the impact of any technology 
including AI. So that's where uh, the economist in me comes into the picture, which is about, okay, tell me about what are some of the questions you're going after? Oh, we want to get to know our customers. What do you want to know about your customers? Oh, you know, we don't quite understand their journey or what is their intention or, you know, it just kind of goes on and on, right? So be able to actually listen deep enough to some of the strategic business questions, break down the assumptions, whether they are said or unsaid uh, assumptions. If you manage to break those down, then understand the constraints within the system that we are dealing, whether there are physical constraints or data constraints, or again, some constraints that is actually related to enablement and people who are actually the end users, being able to break that whole system, understand the connections, and then only at that point, you're like, okay, what is really the best solution? Sometimes it's a simple regression and sometimes a sophisticated black box algorithm. <laughs> I love that. I just, I feel like everyone who has worked in this space has had at least one moment where it's like, can you help me do AI? And it's like, sure but why? Like, what, what is it that we're trying to do? Um, have you received any pushback though? Like, because you're really sounds like you're trying to ask the right questions and you're really trying to dig at the motivations and, but that takes time. So like, how do you inspire businesses to go on this journey with you before they even sign a contract? In all honesty, it's actually usually the other way around. Let me tell you a funny story. So this is about last year. So actually just around this time, I met the chief transformation officer, digital transformation officer at a big financial institution. And before talking to me, uh, they were working with another data science firm and they were doing a lot of different, you know, interesting analytics. So here's how my first conversation with this gentleman went. Well, everything we do in the space of big data and data science is going to fail. It has failed. None of the stuff that we do kind of works. So how are you going, like how what you're doing is going to be any different? And I kind of laughed and I said, okay, you're just telling me that. Let me tell you actually much worse stats than this. You know, 98% uh, of projects in this space fail. And you know, there's just like so much of that stats. And I guess, you know, you, you know this also, but there is a lot of uh, projects that really never, um, move beyond POC, they never really get to deployment. If they get to deployment, hardly any serious experimentation and testing has happened on them. We're really not sure, even for the projects that are deployed, what the actual ROI is, was it actually even worth it, you know, and on and on, right? Um, recently, MIT actually published a research um, and they had interviewed, I guess they had surveyed 3,000 um, different companies that has invested in AI and only 10% of them reported any kind of tangible ROI. In all honesty, I actually am surprised because I didn't expect 10%. I expected even less, uh, like a lower number <laughs> than 10% because there's a lot of um, not appropriate practices. It's not exactly bad practices, but practices that are not appropriate to the environments that these solutions are actually being deployed. So when I talk with them, I actually hardly ever talk about our solutions or about our algorithms. And it's about, okay, we know stuff are gonna fail, but let me, like, tell me what the problems that you actually set to explore or solve for are. Let's actually really first understand the questions because sometimes the simple fact of it is we are not even asking the right questions and that usually actually leads to projects failing. So let's really open that kind of warm up. And, you know, in that process, we work very collaboratively. Um, uh, we have this saying in a company, you know, we insist to have a bunch of irrelevant people in the room. 
people from different parts of the company, people that don't necessarily collaborate on their day-to-day -day, uh, tasks or you know activities that they're doing. Somebody from design, somebody from products, somebody from data science team, somebody from technology, from office of CIO. But when you have this kind of group of or marketing, for example, when you have these uh, diverse group of people in the room with people from my team, which are economists, physicists, computer scientists, sociologists, when you have that kind of group in a mix, you're going to look at a problem from a lot of different angles. And only through that process, you actually get to see what the real question is. And you're right, in a sense, it can take a long time, but it doesn't have to. When you go toward questions targeted, when you have a targeted approach to very same questions actually are going to save you time down the road because you're not trying to boil the ocean of data. You're not trying to understand everything. When the question is clear, you can actually go to data that much more targeted. You said a few things here that really resonated with me. I think the idea of having the right people in the room in order to really understand what the right problems or the right questions are, I think this is an approach that I've never really seen or organizations learn to do this when it's too late because they have failed so, so many times. Um, in your journey, have you seen a shift in how organizations are now thinking about AI? There was like probably maximum hype cycle maybe two, three years ago, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think especially during COVID, so it's been an interesting um, period because on one hand, we all know that the digital transformation conversations and projects have been absolutely accelerated uh, that much faster than before. So, and you know, with that comes attention to AI, comes attention to advanced analytics, predictive analytics, etc. So, on one hand, there's definitely uh, a more um, uh, a bigger desire for these sort of conversations and projects. On the other hand, exactly because of what you pointed out, that there has been a lot of failure in uh, previously in projects that have been previously considered or worked on, people are extremely skeptical. Uh, and obviously, because of COVID and because of the economic turndown, there has been a lot of uh, a lot of budgets have been very much screened. So in that, when you're looking at that bigger picture, to be very honest with you, I think it's quite positive because it has to be the case that we are that much more critical, especially asking questions about uh, the value that we are creating. If we are just, if our approach is just a um, curiosity approach or um, just, oh, let's just try it out and see what happens. Sure, there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. Uh, but I think it is very important to also be critical about the value that we potentially can gain uh, from you know uh, our investment be critical of the value that you're that you're receiving that's that's such an incredible phrase that really applies to so many walks of life I want to shift gear, gears a little bit Ragaya I it's so rare to meet women in the startup space in analytics and in everything anything and you and I have talked about this phenomenon before but like what inspired you to even start theory and practice I think for me, it seemed more like a little bit of a natural path as opposed to a conscious decision. Uh, I didn't quite decide to become an entrepreneur, uh, but it was maybe more my desire to question status quo and also knowing that there's a better way of doing things. You know, just I just couldn't accept that, you know, everything that we see, especially in practice and in the industry, but the kind of practices related to AI, related to data is the best we can. And as a matter of fact, I, I believe it is 
definitely not the best. We can do much better. Uh, but we have to be that much more critical. We have to think about how we are setting the systems, how we are setting the environments, and again, asking the questions, right? So I think it was more that that drove me to uh, start theory and practice, uh, as opposed to a conscious decision that I want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think that's the case for a lot of people that I've talked to. You, you feel or you see a need and you're driven to solve it. And sometimes the easiest yeah. way to do it is you do it yourself, right? How long is it? Yeah. How long have you been an entrepreneur now? Oh, well, uh, theory and practice is turning three this February. So it's been yes. three incredible years. Uh, we definitely, our path was definitely uh, unconventional as in we didn't decide to go raise money or we didn't decide to go build a product. Although we have been very careful about you know, our approach and our methodologies and we definitely have a process that has created and continues to create a lot of efficiencies both internally but also for our clients as well. Interesting. You didn't. So, okay. The piece that really interested me there is you're a startup that didn't immediately start asking for money, hitting up the VCs, looking for angel funds. Like, how did you do that? And why did you decide to go this route? I decided um, when we started TAP, I made three decisions. Uh, the first decision was not to raise any money. The second one was not to uh, build a product. And the third one was not to even specialize. And in all honesty, all three of them came exactly from the same place. Uh, at that point, I had uh, I was out of academia for just about two years. It was about two years after my PhD. And uh, it was a simple thought. Why on earth do I assume two years after my PhD, I actually understand the market? Especially uh, when I have been, quote unquote, when I grew up in extremely specialized um, the fields in very particular bubbles that are not really connected at all to real world. Uh, don't get me wrong, I think there's a lot of ways uh, that my education and background, both you know, uh, if in particle physics and in physics in general, the systems thinking, the way you actually approach solutions, and also in economics, which is really about the art of asking questions and then being, uh, being able to apply scientific methodology to it. So there's a lot of relevance in that background that can actually apply to real world. But um, I talked about it very openly uh, that I don't really think the academic institutions, especially in higher education, the way we grew up, are uh, quite preparing us for real world. So because of that, I decided that I'm not going to develop a product. I told myself we would only develop a product when we have answered these three questions. What is the path to product? What is the path to market? But even uh, perhaps a more challenging question was the path to revenue. Do we actually understand people, people's willingness to pay? Uh, because when I'm sitting in vacuum and creating a product, usually I think about the cost and what it takes to develop that product. I don't necessarily consider the other side of the market and people's willingness to pay and how they actually value that. So the first year, um, we decided that we're just gonna be very general consulting company. And uh, I traveled a lot in the first year. In the morning, I would be in Toronto talking with a CEO of an insurance company. In the afternoon, I'll be in Boston talking with a CEO of genomics company. And uh, a lot of patterns arise. Uh, I started actually seeing there's a lot of similarities in the, in the actual route causes and some of the more fundamental problems uh, that people are dealing with uh, across different industries. 
And then based on that, slowly, slowly, we specialize and we start developing internal products in order to increase the efficiency in the way we were actually delivering our services. And now toward the end of our third year, um, a lot of those internal products have matured now. So I'm actually excited for this coming year ahead of us. That's so exciting. That's just absolutely fantastic to hear. Um, what have you learned in your whole three-year startup journey? Uh, well, I guess one of the most important lessons for me is like listen carefully. And if you think you're listening carefully, listen more carefully. Um, <laughs> because the odds are there's still a lot of assumptions that, again, I or somebody like me would operate based on because of our technical backgrounds. So being able to really make sure we understand the problems out there and we understand how we can truly create value. Uh, that requires a lot of uh, deep listening and paying attention. Um, I think the other piece um, in general, probably every entrepreneur goes through a process like this is uh, just know there's going to be uh, difficult times, there are going to be exciting times, but you, know, you have to set your eyes uh, on the goal. You cannot lose sight of that. Uh, otherwise, life gets too difficult. I, I completely agree with you. How do you, well, one of the things that you and I have talked about and I've seen constantly time and time again is like, well, obviously there's a, there's a, a lack of women in technology, but there's even less like female-led startups. Like, why do you think this is? I think um, there's a little bit of uh, society. I mean, there's these conversations uh, Fortunately, our front and center these days, there's a lot of attention uh, to, you know, making, uh, to making sure women are empowered and they are more, um, they're showing up more. But I think uh, we still have a long path. Being an entrepreneur, it requires a lot of uh, sacrifice. It requires a lot of time and effort. Um, you know, it requires a, a tribe that truly supports you, whether it is uh, your immediate family, your parents, your mentors. Um, so I think, uh, I don't know, maybe it is the price that distracts people, but I think there is a shift. I think there's more and more uh, young women, especially, that are going after what they are passionate about. And I think that's, that's really good. Uh, the potential challenge there is the support networks um, that these young women would find. Um, I think I have been extremely lucky. I've had incredible mentors since I've been young, since I've been at university. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, being out there, both, uh, you know, people who are older than us, uh, the generation of women who actually have gone through a lot of um, hardship for, you know, you and I to be here, to feel empowered and to do what we are doing. So I really do look up to them and they are wonderful groups. And I don't think, uh, you know, any successful woman, I think would really like to get back to their communities anyway. Um, but then the other side of it is uh, the younger generation, you know, our generation, we also should be um, proactive. We should go out of our way to really ask for advice and not just assume uh, that either we can figure it out or there's a lot of, there's a lot of help out there. It's so true, this idea of asking for advice. I had a really interesting experience, even just last week, where a buddy of mine was asking for advice, and I was thinking afterwards, reflecting, that I'm like, you know what? I don't think any of my female friends would have done that. Like, not the way, the way he'd done it, the, the questions he asked me, it was, I found it really, really interesting. Have you noticed any differences between, like, having uh, female mentors versus male? Um... I think the female mentors that I have, they are powerhouses. <laughs> they are incredible women. So, you know, maybe my sample is a little bit biased. 
um, I have had a great success just really um, approaching uh, female entrepreneurs and uh, women that are just really successful. And it's actually mind blowing to me what they had to overcome to uh, achieve the success that they have. But also, uh, you know, the uh, incredible um, I guess male mentors uh, that have had incredible business people and also my professors and advisors uh, over the last few years. Yeah, I, I feel I feel really lucky. What's a, one piece of advice that you would give to another woman looking to pursue a startup? Don't be afraid. It's going to be hard, but don't be afraid. It's nothing. Uh, it's not impossible to do this. So if there is an absolute burning desire to change something that you want to change, something that doesn't sit right with you, to question uh, status quo, just go for it. And there is help. But be smart about it. Like, don't be a martyr. There is no need for that. You know, just be smart about it. Ask questions. Be critical. Work hard. And just know there is help. What a wonderful way to end this session. Ragaya, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much, Sarah. Friendly reminder, comments, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast do not constitute as business or investment advice. Comments mentioned by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the views of analytics by the same constituents. Until next time, I'm Sarah Sun. Peace out.